Capital Weekly Podcast. This is John Howard, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And we're going to talk about several things today, I think. Let's talk about first about the top 100, since we barely, we just got off of it. I feel wiped out now that this week's over. It's Friday around midday when we're recording this, and I feel very relaxed, and I'm glad this I'm glad this edition is behind us. You're just relaxed because we delivered all the magazines to uh, to the Capitol. That's true, and my That's legs done. are still sore. Yeah. You know? <laughs> What would you think of the building? That's the first time I've actually traversed the whole swing space and actually got a feeling like I actually know what's going on over there. What do you think of it? I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, I love the balconies. Uh, yeah. I love you know, seeing people relaxing there. I know the old annex was very, to me, was very claustrophobic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, from what I understand, this is not any any kind of a permanent thing they're going to be moving. This will be eventually just be a state office building, but it seemed nice. And we talked to some of the staffers there. Hello, Aaron Moreno. And uh, he said that he liked it. It was a little weird, but overall, yeah. it was good. I kind of liked it too. And still, I know I've mentioned this before, but um, I like buttons in the elevators. I feel a sense of claustrophobia when there's no buttons in there. Something, it's weird. You go into a box and the only button there, I, well, I saw one for a phone and one for an emergency. So, okay, so that's in there. But the electronics of the elevators are new to me. I guess lots of new buildings have similar hookups. But uh, And it was sort of sterile. It was carpeted and it was quiet. And also there's a similarity in room space, which I kind of liked. In fact, Aaron had mentioned that, that he kind of likes the idea that the, that the offices are of similar square footage. So it's not like there's this great hierarchy, except for the leadership. Yeah. Um, and I like that, too. Also, security was a lot less onerous. Than I thought it would be, and we were bringing in. We brought in, you know, lots of what four hundred magazines thereabouts, yeah, or roughly more, yeah, more. Uh, and we didn't have any problem getting by that. We got by the metal detectors, so yeah. What I know, happy. one of the things the staff mentioned is that they didn't care for the fact there's only one way in and out. So in yeah. the capital, you could get in multiple ways. Yeah. Uh, swing space, you get in one way. So as they mentioned, if there's a giant crowd waiting to go in and you know make some sort of a statement you're behind them if you happen yeah. to. And same thing when you're getting out. Yeah, so makes sense. I can see how that would be a pain in the ass. Yeah, It's kind of like a roach motel, you know. You get in and then... <laughs> then you don't get out. Then you don't get out at all. So uh, so after that little travel log, let's talk about... We can talk about the top 100. So, oh, all right. Uh, so this year, this is yet another COVID year. This is the third edition of the top 100 that was published in a year that's really been dominated by COVID. Yeah. And so it changed the parameters for gathering this information. I mean, normally yeah. you do, I would say in the old days, in the pre-COVID era, you would do maybe 100 interviews, yeah. most Sometimes of them live. More. Yeah, that's true. That's totally true. And it was actually sort of fun because you get to hang out in coffee shops and bars and gossip and what gets better than that, you know? But with the pandemic, obviously people are more shut down or closed down. And a lot of it was email. Uh, a lot of it was more phone calls, I think. A little harder to get a hold of people and talk to them by phone when you're interviewing them than it is when you're face to face in a you know in a coffee shop, for example. So that was different. Uh, we did not talk to nearly as many people as we've done before pre-pandemic. But the bottom line is, I think it came out. I'm still pretty happy with the list. Very happy with the list. And I think we did talk to the people that counted um, that we talked to. And I think the list, with a few exceptions. Uh, that some people pointed out, which I won't repeat. I think the list is pretty is is pretty good. Yeah, well, and I do feel like you were able to get 
some sources that were pretty close to the horseshoe, which as someone pointed out, no longer is a horseshoe. That's right. And yeah. so now it's uh, it's a horseshoe state of mind. Yes. So um, you were able to speak to people in the governor's circle and sort of tease out how that works because it's not something you can just figure out from titles, at least in this administration. Yeah. Titles are not as important as the actual role they play. And so you were able to get some people who laid that out for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I, I think that's true. I, I've mentioned this before, but the titles are always sort of a mystery to me. I know titles are very important to everybody as far as it describes their work function, but uh, there's a lot of overlap still over there, it seems to me. And the difference between somebody who's described as, say, a senior advisor on agriculture and someone who is a secretary for agriculture, exactly what they do and how they interact with the governor is still a surprise to me, something of a mystery to me. And that's one example out of many. So figuring out how they work is really sort of the really sort of the, the challenge of doing the top 100, figuring the flow chart, the, the communication flow, you know, between the people, you know. And uh, I think we have that a bit figured out, but there's a lot more we could do with it, you know. And there was a seemed like there was a lot of churn in the administration uh, this year. A lot of high profile names left. Um you know, the first one that comes to mind was the uh, Surgeon General. Yeah. And, but there were a whole lot of other people yeah. that left. And it, that brought in some new names. And, in fact, we had someone, I think she's at number nine, Lauren Sanchez, who had never been on the list before and suddenly yeah. skyrockets in with a bullet. She is at number nine. Yeah. So, Lauren Sanchez. So yeah. That's a know. good example. And uh, uh, we have people, you know, been on the list, but they don't go up that high. You're absolutely right. Another is Ben Cheetah. Yeah, and, it's exactly what I was thinking. Just from number ten, Ben uh, Cheetah. Yeah, just really, you know, really amazing. And the the theory behind the list, to the extent there's any rigorous methodology here, is that the closer you are to the governor, and the more trusted you are to the governor uh, by the governor, and the more uh, your workspace takes you into the governor's workspace for policy, administration, etc., then the higher you should be on the list because the Governor's office really is the center of state power in California, um, not entirely, but mostly. And so that sort of is a good determinant of where you are on the list. There are other things that go into this, but when we talk about the top ten, or what we, I don't know what we're going to call the horseshoe now, the phantasmagorical horseshoe, because there's no real horseshoe-shaped office over there. But the closer you are to that operation, then the higher on the list. There are some exceptions, of course. So. But that pretty much dictates the list. We sort of see the list as a, a description of a pond, and you throw a rock in the ripples from the very center, and as they go out, that the list tries to describe that. You know, and one of the things that I find interesting reading the list is you have people that are from very disparate areas. So, for example, you have Anthony York, former former editor of Capital yeah. Weekly, a longtime journalist, and is now working doing kindling communications for the governor. So that's one person. Then another person on the list is uh, like, well, not, not this year, but last year was Ann Irwin, who marshaled, I think it was $31 million to spend in elections and working on public policy areas. You know, Arnie Scholl Jr., another, he's a new name this year. Uh, he works uh, with NextGen and he spends money all over California. So, you have people that are spending millions of dollars to affect policy, 
And then you also have Anthony York, who is affecting, ostensibly affecting policy, but he's communicating policy. And then you have people that are working directly with elected. You know, you have the chief staff for for the speaker, chief staff for the pro tem. And then you have people that are like now Lorena Gonzalez, who is running this massive labor organization. I mean, how do you compare? How do you decide numerically how those people interrelate? That, to me, is a complete mystery. Yeah. It's really tough to do. And I use a dartboard, you know, basically. I, I don't know how you – there's no real answer to that because it's, so much of it is subjective, you know. Uh, clearly, a person who runs a labor organization is a very significant political player. So is, is that significance as great as a person who advises the governor every day? Is that, is that uh, position as great as somebody who um, interacts with the legislature every day and pushes the governor's agenda? You have to weigh up. Uh, obviously, somebody with a lot of money, we talked about this before, somebody with a lot of money can have a lot of influence in politics, but that isn't the only, that isn't the only influence that person might have funding, you know. Well, and then there's the other flip side of this. There are people who spent more money in politics who are not on this list because they spent it very poorly. I'm yeah. thinking of some Silicon Valley folks who have really just flung money at the wall and it did nothing because they, yeah. they didn't hire well, this is my interpretation. Yeah. They didn't hire the people to advise them on how to spend that money. Yeah. You know, uh, Arnie Soule Jr., he's a smart guy to tell you how to spend your money. I mean, you know, Tom Steyer started Next Gen, hired Arnie Soule Jr. Arnie Soule Jr. Uh, knows exactly how the capital works. He knows how communications works. He knows how campaign messaging campaigns works. He's going to get a lot of bang for his buck. But some of these folks from Silicon Valley, they're spending millions and millions of dollars. I'm thinking of a crypto billionaire who spent a million bucks on the recall campaign last year and got nothing. Like literally, he might as as well just flushed his money down the toilet. Yeah. Uh, No, I agree. I think think that's a really good point. Uh, Steyer is really interesting, too. He's obviously got more money than God. Uh, and he did a lot of financing before he did that big congressional cycle. He had done that in, in Sacramento uh, in the state legislature. So he had lots of money. He had and he has lots of money. But the but the thing that was weird about him was beyond the money. What was there? This multiple consultants who I spoke with who really know this stuff. They said that was the problem. He didn't pay his dues in Congress, for example. Maybe he could have run for a seat. Maybe oh, you're saying have... running for president or whatever? Yeah. yeah. So he, so he, he really just wanted to run for president to hang out with Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Maybe so. You know? Sure seemed like that. Um, but it just seemed like he, he, you know, with all these resources he has, he didn't have the political antenna to know how to make a more gradual. You know, I, I, I it's pretty rare that you have a really ultra rich person who thinks that they should be paying dues. I mean, Meg Whitman is an example who had never run for anything, never been dog catcher, yet she wanted to be governor. And there is a whole litany of people who decided that because they are business uh, geniuses, they should be elected. Hey, work for Donald Trump. So they probably think it'll work for them too. You know, personally, as a person who watches this from a distance, but I'm closer than most people, I think, I want somebody who knows how this works. I want somebody who knows how the sausage is made and has, you know, served in some sort of an office. Yeah, I agree. So that they actually understand like the classic, uh, what was some gaffe on Gray Davis's part where he said the, the job of the le- legislature is to implement my vision. And it's like, Gray, you've been there. You absolutely know 
that the legislature does not see its job as implementing your vision or any other governor's vision. Uh, they all have, you know, 120 visions yeah. that they're trying to yeah. implement. And so, you know, as a general rule, I think that it's a better, you get better government from people who are actually experienced and kind of work their way up versus someone who parachutes in. You, you know, know uh, there have been, I don't know about super rich, but there have been any number of legislators in both houses who are quite wealthy. Yes. And they were wealthy in business and then went from business into politics. They felt they had a message for, you know, maybe a pro-business message or, or whatever, but they did quite well in the private sector. Orange County, I recall, had a number of these. Sacramento, uh, Neil immediately comes to mind, but there are others who Rebecca Morgan, I think, from the Silicon Valley area, she was another one. Very wealthy in their own right, but they saw political service, public service as a higher calling even than that. And so that's, you know, that was their political train. They knew politics. If they yeah. ran for a higher office, uh, but they at least had a grounding in it. But I think that's the thing is they saw the political offices that they ran for as important as and as integral to the system versus people who just want right. a stepping, they see it as a stepping stone and they're not going to bother with yeah. the stepping stones. Yeah, I agree. And people like, well, it's been well documented. People like Trump give to everybody. Yeah. Uh, and he felt all politicians could be bought. And he would cite this chapter and verse, Republicans or Democrats. He was a big, big Hillary supporter for a while. People forget after the 2016 one. Yeah, I did see. I think The Onion ran a headline this week uh, that said uh, Clinton donor uh, invest, or rated by the FBI and showed a picture of Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> I love it. Pretty funny. <laughs> um, by the way, just parenthetically speaking about the FBI raid, as we speak now, it's being released in uh, – it's being released in New York or in, in D.C. by the Attorney General's office. And this was the return on what, what it is they found. And this is what people have been waiting for. But before it was released, Wall Street Journal, Breitbart too, I'm told. But I saw the Wall Street Journal story, did a really good story on what, what was in those documents, how much they, I think it was 20 boxes. There was a, a memo a document there about Roger Stone. There was uh, a number of uh, highly classified. John, this is all going to run in three days, so we'll all have the, yeah. the the New York Times will have run the nuclear codes yeah. by that time, and then uh, we'll we'll look prescient, you know. We'll look, so by that time it runs. So you anyway, know, but speaking cool. of money, actually, you know, we've been talking about donors and everything. Getting back to the money, we broke our own rule this year. Joe Stepanshaw, also new to the list, is number eleven. He's only been in his job what a month. And yeah, that very is briefly. that is very much something we do not do. Yeah. We normally have a rule that you have to be in place a significant amount of time uh, before we put you on the list yeah. because we really don't know what someone's just because someone's been really effective before doesn't mean they're going to live up to the That's true. live up to the job. But in this case, how can you not put the uh, the director of the Department of Finance on the list? He has been in there for a little bit of time. Uh, so do you want to talk about Joe yeah. Stepanchon and about that decision? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, uh, rules are made to be broken, and it's exciting and titillating to break a rule. And and as you said, I mean, I and we pointed out in the book, you got to have the director of finance in there. You can't have leave an empty space. It seemed to me. We knew, for example, on the flip side of that, we knew that Ana Mata Santos was leaving, but yes. we had her in there as well because so, she's not leaving till the end of this month. Right till the end of this month. So, um, it. So, yes, we broke a rule, um, but it felt nice sometimes. And it also makes a better book. If you if you rigidly adhere to rules, which I think are, we need to do most of the time to make the um, – to sort of assure people we have a certain method in our madness, you know. Uh, 
But this seemed to be one of those exceptions. Well, it is funny. You know, the methodology, there are folks, everyone has an opinion on how this list should be written. Yeah. I, I will assure you that if you ever uh, work for Capital Weekly and you speak to anyone who hasn't, you know, brings up the top 100, they all have an opinion yeah. on how it can be made better with their methodology. Um, Explicitly expressed. <laughs> cogently, concisely expressed two words, and the second one is you. Okay, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> um, and, and I do think that one of the things that keeps the list interesting and keeps people reading the list is that there is clearly some methodology, but you're right, it's not a rigid hierarchical thing. There's no there's no math involved, frankly. You know, this is something where you look and there is sort of a shooting from the hip like, well, this person clearly should not be six people ahead of this other person. Right. And you move them around. It's, you know, it's a little yeah. bit of a Jenga game. Yeah. I, it, it is sort of a crapshoot, sort of a dice game. Um, and uh, a couple of things happened this time that were very upsetting. We talked about one ahead of reporter's name misspelled in the print, but we caught it. Tim caught it and we got it in the uh, – luckily it was only a reporter though, right? But we got it in the uh, online version. Uh, and another thing, I had, we rely on gossip. We talk to people, and they give us their assessment of who should be on the list. And we talk to other people and say, hey, is that right? Then we go back to the original. You know what I mean? We, there's a certain amount of discussion here. And one of the things uh, that I had been told uh, by several people was that after retiring from the Building Construction Trades Council, Robbie Hunter had done some consulting work for WISPA, Western States Petroleum Association. Actually, he has not. And so we did a... A correction on that to tell people that uh, and we corrected it of course except in the print version yeah so what we've done before when we've had a problem like this we in the in the subsequent print version we we uh, make that we make it clear that we've done a correction on that and we do that as soon as we can because we think it helps the veracity of the list it, there's a certain comfort I think there and people who read this list that if we screw it up we'll make it right uh, at least, you know, as, to the extent we can. And I think it helps the list. And if we had a, you know, if I had my druthers, we'd have a new set of rules each time. But <laughs> we really don't. And to keep it consistent, um, you know, we do the best we can. Basically. You know, another new name on the list is Leanne Randolph, who yeah. is, again, another person. How do you keep them off the head of the ARB? Right. And I, and, and the ARB <clears throat> is the pre, the premier air quality enforcer in the United States, not just California, but in the United States. Some would quarrel with that because of the U.S. EPA, but this, but the ARB predated the EPA, the U.S. EPA. And people all over the country, all over the world, in fact, after the Volkswagen scandal we had a few years, a few years ago, um, they look to the ARB for guidance. So clearly they got to be willing. And she's filling big shoes. I mean, Mary Nichols had been at the ARB for a long yeah. time. And Mary Nichols was a huge name. In fact, was rumored to be uh, con in consideration as head of the EPA. That's right. For yeah. the Biden administration. That ultimately did not happen. But uh, yeah, so I, I just don't know how you keep this person off. And she is actually couched with implementing the governor's vision of phasing out sales of new gasoline-powered cars by 2035, which is right around the corner. Yeah. So that is a huge job. Uh, now we'll see if the next governor decides that that's important enough to keep or if the next yeah. governor moves that down the, down the line. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, I don't know what the future will bring there, but the ARB has a tradition of being quite aggressive uh, and, you know, in terms of air quality regulation, they have a vast scientific staff. They had a big staff anyway, 
Um, and of course, they're in that building that's right category to where we're doing this interview right now, where they're just crawling with environmental regulators over there, you know, so they do the deed. Yeah. You know? And then another new person is Andrew Meredith, who's, who took over yeah. for Robbie Hunter at yeah. the the State Building and Construction Trades yeah. Council, a huge player in, yeah. in policy. I think so, here. too. And I, his number, I think, is 16. Yeah. And um, uh, Hunter, of course, had been, for a number of years, had been kind of going up to uh, better numbers than that. But for the first time in, uh, I think um, Andrew's number was quite good. And I think that uh, it'll obviously will improve. That is a very, very politically potent organization. And it represents, I think, um, 350,000, 400,000 individual workers through affiliates that they are affiliated with through unions. It's sort of an umbrella group of unions. Very politically active here. Hunter was, of course, and I expect that he is too. His background include political activism in the North State. Um, I, you know, I think there'll be every been as politically active as yeah, I think, in the past. I think he was very closely handpicked and trained by Robbie Hunter. So, uh, too, yeah. so, you know, it's not like he was just parachuted in. I think he's yeah, going yeah. to know exactly how all the all the machinery works there. Yeah. Uh, also, a big jump for Christy Bauma, who was the lobbyist for the firefighters oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. God knows how long. Yeah, forever. Also, a former, I think a former science teacher, high school science yeah, she teacher. She was a high school teacher and she's... Um, been, as you mentioned, she was a, a as a lobbyist for the firefighters had a firm that was really dedicated to that. Now she's uh, Newsom's legislative secretary, I think. Uh, obviously, knows the Capitol up and down. She'd been on the list before, the not on the list and on the list, and clearly uh, she's got a good number on the list. So, and yeah. she belongs there. You know? Yeah, I think she jumped up yeah. about forty or fifty numbers. Uh, and then we alluded to this before, Anthony York. Now this is weird because Anthony York started this list. You and Anthony started this Pretty list in yeah. 2009. Uh, well, credit, credit, give more credits to uh, our advertising sales guy, Mike Maniscalco, uh, who was couched with, uh, with, with bringing up more, bringing more attention to the paper. said, you know, people love lists. And the, our old publisher said, yes, why don't you do a list of the most powerful people, which they were at the time thinking was going to be elected. So I think not, he wanted to be on the list too. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> so, but who cares about electeds, you know? Uh, yeah, so then the idea of not elect. Right. And uh, so that first one, first the list electeds, was 2009. I, I mean, I, I really, I still do too. I think, and I think the list bears it out. If you do electeds, then immediately you've got the governor and the rest of the statewide officers, pretty much. Then you have the chairs of the committees in both houses. Then you've got the members of the boards of supervisors of maybe I don't mayors know, of major cities. Yeah, may right. So at the end of the day, you've got eighty positions filled. They're frittered away, and that's no fun. So unelected is much better, I think. And ranking them is the thing. I've seen some lists where they tried ranking them by alphabetical order. No, yeah. it doesn't work. Well, and you know what's funny is then it really kind of screws with the list too. Because uh, last year we had Matt Rex wrote on the list, I think for the first time ever. And Matt is somebody who should have really been on the list a long time ago. But he was an elected official. Elected he was, official. Yeah. He was, I think, the mayor of Woodland and was also on the city council of Woodland. Yeah. Uh, I know he's so, on the board. Uh, yeah. Little county. So, yeah. so we, we left him off for years and years and years because he was an elected official, even though it was a local official. It just, he, he didn't follow the rules. So, or, I mean, not he didn't follow the rules. We followed our own rules. He wasn't, he finally is not in office now. So last year he was on, he was on the list for the first time. He probably should have been on many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Totally agree. 
Tia Orr, yeah, from the uh, executive director of SEIU. Yeah. Uh, now she took over for Omar Hernandez, right. correct? Yeah, yeah, and sure. that's a sad story. That was a sad story in itself, and it's, I think Alma's trial is coming up in the fall. I think, uh, and her husband as well. I think, um, but and that's on a separate issue. That that's separate. But Tia Orr. Uh, who I was not familiar with at all. And as soon as I asked around about T.O.R., they all said, oh, yeah, oh, God, yeah, she's got to be, you know. So there she is. Yeah, And then another new one is Kimberly Rodriguez, yeah. who is uh, the policy director for Senate Leader Atkins. Right, yeah. And that's another name where, why isn't she, people told me that they always hear re- responses from, where is Kimberly Rodriguez? Why is she on that list? What tells the matter with you? Well, mea culpa. So she's on the list. So I can get rid of those nasty calls, you know. <laughs> so, And then the one that, uh, you know, you noted in her bio that it's weird to put her on the list is Loretta Gonzalez, who was... Yeah. A hugely influential legislator. Yeah. One lobbyist said yeah. that she was the most important legislator yeah. in the building. Uh, mind you, he was on the other on side the other of the side. aisle yeah. um, from you know all of her legislation. Yeah. And now she is running the Labor Fed, yeah. which, as I remember, there was a leaked rumor. You know, this is like uh, this is like the leaks about Mar-a-Lago. There was a leaked rumor that she was going to take that job. She yeah. said absolutely not. And then I think January 1st, she yeah. said, I'm leaving to go run the yeah. labor fence. They so. apparently had been talking to her for weeks before that. Yeah. And the deal was pretty much done. It just, I didn't know about it, but, um, uh, but it, it happened. You know, when we sort of get wind of that, actually seriously heard rumors on that. We checked with people over there and the way they answered the question was, well, you'll have to wait and see. We'll just, you know, then, you know, something's up. you know, and the thing I heard, that actually put Lorena Gonzalez over the top as an effective legislator is that her communications person was a former Capital Weekly reporter, Sam Absolutely. Gallegos. I think that's really yeah. made her made her reputation. Absolutely. Sam's, it's the training you know, she got here. You know? Sam's Absolutely. communication skills really took yeah. took Lorena to the next uh, to the next level. Um, and then another person who made a massive jump is Dana Williamson, who is sort of a mysterious figure for us because she yeah. never calls us back. She never calls us back. So uh, what can I say? <laughs> But boy, a lot of people. Very effective, though, obviously. And she's been inside and outside. She's got her own campaign firm. She does campaigns, consulting firm. She's been, I think she was at PGE and came over with the crowd from Pete, with Nancy McFadden. Yeah. Came to work over here, worked with Brown. Uh, obviously, she, she belongs on the list. But. Yeah. When we had her higher up for a number of years, and several people were like, yeah. That's totally, she's, yeah. I, I, she, her fingers are in every pie. Yeah. Uh, you know, this year she's running a bunch of campaigns, she's running the attorney general uh, campaign for Rob Bonta. She's involved That's in right. ballot, ballot measures. So, and then the other thing I, I never did find out, she also killed off her Twitter feed about maybe about a year or two ago. Her Twitter oh. feed disappeared for like three months. And I was like, what's this all about? But yeah. I don't know, it's back. Is she, she's Twitter. back on Twitter. I don't know. I think she's back on Twitter, yeah, but I will, someday the truth will come out. I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah, right. And then the new name is Alice Bushing Reynolds. Yeah, that's the name I was saying. Alice yeah. From Not a household word, but she's at the PUC now. Uh, so there you go. So and then, oh, an- yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. another new name is number 64, Kurt Anetto. Yeah. Uh, Kurt Anetto is an attorney. He's with Nielsen Merksimer, uh, and he writes ballot initiatives. And he is most, you know, he's on the Republican pro-business side. I think that's fair to say. We'll probably get a call saying he's done others as well. He may have. But uh, uh, he is someone who, when you vote on something, if it's a, if it's like, for example, Prop, uh, what was the one? Was it 22? What was the? Well, the Uber Lyft. Uber uh, Lyft. I, yeah, that was I believe he wrote that one and others as well. Uh, and that's really why he's on the list. We're actually looking for the Republican equivalent 
of who does that on the Democratic side, and he's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, a person who's back on the list, uh, who I think was not on a few times, is Lynn Valbuena. Lynn oh, Valbuena yeah. is the chair of the San Manuel Band of Mission well, Indians. And hey, and full disclosure, she's also the, exec- the head of TASSAN, the Tribal Alliance of yeah. Sovereign Indian Nations. They've donated money to Capital Weekly for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, they also spent money at Capital Weekly before there, we were a 501c3. So, yeah. uh, you know. But uh, so anyway, so just for clarification, they are a supporter of Open California, yeah. which is the publisher of Capital Weekly. But uh, I don't see how you could argue about her value in the list and really her bio speaks to that although we have an error in there that uh, i'll take credit for because i found a news story sent it to john and it turned out it was my interpretation was incorrect but she took no over notices but us yeah, exactly. uh but she took over she had been the chair of samuel before was not and uh she took over again in april and immediately killed off a san manuel led ballot initiative, which was going to be yet another sports betting initiative on their own uh, with a few other tribes. She put that effort on hold, which I think is probably on a permanent hold, yeah. uh, and then immediately dumped $25 million into the opposition against Prop 27, uh, which her predecessor did not appear inclined to do. So that's a lot of dough. That's a lot of clout. And again, talk about people spending their money wisely. Uh, a lot of the tribal people are very, very savvy. And I think that Lynn Valbuena is certainly one that fits into that category. They spend a lot of money and they spend it, I think, pretty wisely. And Nick Rowley? Nick Rowley, the guy, the micro guy? Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with him, but he apparently um, was instrumental in the micro settlement, had wanted to go to a battle, had money and resources out there, and everybody came together and he was one of the players there. He may be a one-off. Yeah. May not happen next year. And if you read this book, you know, from start to finish, you just start with one and you go all the way to the back. You'll see the theme this year really is micro. Uh, That figures in so many of the profiles, uh, starting with, I think the highest one up is Dustin Corcoran, CMA, who, if I'm remembering right, his very first assignment uh, when he was hired by the CMA, like, in the 90s was to work on micro issues. Uh, that's according to I Paul Mitchell. That, yeah. And uh, so he's been working on this for decades and they finally come to a deal. They raised the $250,000 cap, which has been in place since the 70s. Um, do I have that right? The 70s? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's right. So Nick Rowley was the person who wrote a ballot initiative, partly funded the ballot initiative uh, to challenge micro as a proposition and using that as sort of a stick, he brought the, brought the other side to the table and they negotiated it. Everyone we talked to about this said that he was there every step of the way was in the meetings was really a crucial player. And and this probably would not have happened or just many said flat out would not have happened if it was for him. So again, he may, he may never appear on this list again, but this year he's sure in a spot. Yeah, I agree. And then also a new person never been on here, uh, Karen Getman. You're talking about the Republican firm. Yeah. Uh, Nielsen Merksimer. Uh, on the flip side of that is Olson Remco. Yeah. Uh, or Remcho. Remcho, yeah. Olson Remcho. Uh, and Karen Getman is a lawyer over there. Yeah, she's a principal over there. She used to be chair of the FPPC, um, Fair Political Practices Commission. One of our, which we'll, we'll mention in a bit later in the podcast, but one of the uh, people that worked for her, 
uh, is one of our writers, uh, former Sac State professor, former reporter to be, and former lot of writers, magazine writers, Sigrid Baffin. And Sigrid Baffin did uh, communications for the FPPC when Karen was over there. Ah, yeah. interesting. So we have, our DNA goes all over the place to all kinds of people. You know? That's true. Uh, you know, another, uh, another person who's new on the list is Michael Romano. Yeah. Uh, Michael Romano was interesting guy you know he first came to our attention when we were doing our crime conference earlier this year and he is the head of the i forget the name of it but that's the yeah the governor's commission for revision of the penal code something along that order but he also had been head of the three strikes project uh stanford and the more we read up about this guy it was really clear that he had had this huge impact i think they i read that he had had impacted 22,000 people's sentences. Wow. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And was instrumental in overturning 18 life sentences. Hmm. So, I mean, this is a guy who's had a huge impact. I saw that Deronda Lyons uh, from Cal Matters, who is, has interviewed him and written about him, said he's just one of the nicest, most humble, easy to, easygoing guys, but has had this huge impact. And, uh, you know, knowing him, he probably won't even share it on Twitter because he just doesn't care. He's too busy just doing the do. Yeah. I can't stand people that are nice and humble. But, okay. Oh, Randall Hager. Yeah. Uh, We did a lot of coverage this year. uh, uh, And a lot of people did a lot of coverage. And the administration obviously paid attention to a lot of coverage on how we treat the mentally ill. How we treat the homeless mentally ill. Mental illness is a big piece of that. And Randall Hager is really into, I guess, probably the foremost advocate I can think of, of reforming and improving the way uh, the way we deal with the mentally. The, you know. the Lanterman Petrashore Act. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. And a lot more, though, because he's um, th- this whole business that's coming up now and, and probably come to a head in the next couple of weeks is this uh, involuntary commitment for people who may need treatment this but, is a this is part of the care court yes part of the government. care court and he's been instrumental in that uh it's part of the issue involving care court how we treat mentally ill people who may not want to be treated this has been an issue forever and it's been a um it's something of a dividing line now there i i, I believe the aclu was opposed to some of these provisions because the involuntary piece of that was a, was a usurpation of rights uh, and I think other papers have editorialized in the same way. The people on the other side say you've got to have care for people even if they even if they don't want it. My understanding is the care court has a number of protections and safeguards built into it. Um, this is really an emotional argument, emotional debate. And people on both sides of this have had family members that have issues like this. Randall Hagar, I yeah. believe he has an adult son who is, uh, if I remember right, schizophrenia. So, so it's, this, that's a really intense issue. He's number ninety. You know, he's number ninety three. I think he almost probably could have gone higher. I mean, sure, of course. That he, care court yeah. proposal could be a real game changer. Yeah. I mean, obviously California statewide has a huge problem with homeless people and and a significant number of people on the streets. Are struggling with mental issues or addiction issues, and this I think is an attempt to finally yeah. deal with this in a way we really haven't. You've just been—I mean, this has been ongoing for yeah. fifty years oh, at least. God. Yeah, um, and you're right about the number. You know, the number here. I—I I always feel like the numbers in the in I don't know sixty to hundred. That uh, they float. You can have people in sixty. Got people in ninety nine equally valid. You have people in hundred. People at sixty three equally valid. It just we just want to get them on the list because we think they belong on the list. 
but is in, in terms of how we rank them and comparatively how they relate to others, for me, isn't that it isn't that isn't the main issue. The main issue is that we recognize that they belong there. You know? Yeah, and it is hard to know. I mean, it's yeah, it's totally. I think, and it's funny talking about the stratification list. For me, reading this over the last fourteen years, uh, you know, it seems like the one to twenty are pretty self-evident yeah. to a degree. To a degree, I agree. They, they seem to, you, you have a pretty good feeling about the, that, the really low numbers. You have a pretty good feeling about that. Yeah, and they, may, it, and they may be a few numbers off. They're not going to sure. be that far off. Yeah, totally. And then 20 to 50, there's That's a tough. lot of wiggle room and yeah. things, things you could easily be 10 or 50 numbers off there. Yeah. And then, yeah, 50 to 100, it's a crapshoot. Yeah, I and, agree. you know, it, and because I feel like it is. Yeah. Frankly, I think it's first off they have a lot less. You have people who have a lot more uh, obscurity about them. Yeah. They they you don't if someone works for the governor's office, you at least have some idea what they do, and you can talk to people who know what they're involved in and what their day to day operation is. When you're talking about someone that's a lobbyist or you know a communi- God God help us communications person, they don't even have to file any. Report, monetary reports. So God knows what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting with the lobbyists because uh, that's, I know this sounds like a cop-out having a larger staff, but lobbyists are required, obviously, to to uh, register with the Secretary of State, uh, with the state. They're required to list the bills that they're lobbying on. Uh, they're required, if they're lobbying the PUC, they're required to identify that separately. So you, if you had the time and the resources, you could go through those bills that they've lobbied on for or against, and they that's described too. That's uh, identified also. You could find out how many of their bills that they lobbied for became law, or became you know were passed by the legislature, and you you'd have some sort of yardstick. Although you know what's funny is based on one of your profiles that you wrote uh, on John Norwood. Oh yeah, there's a quote that John Norwood said: "Hey, it's not about killing a bill or passing a bill; it's about." changing the bill to your liking. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And so that's, he said, that's the biggest part of the, the most important part of the lobbyist job is, is really it's just making amendments to the bill yeah. that you like or that your clients like. I think that's a good point. And, you know, affecting the bill's passage uh, or as it goes through, whether it gets defeated or reject or uh, approved, but having an input on the way that law is going to be, public doesn't see that, but that's a big piece of it, actually having an impact on what affects us. You know, I, I, I think I told you this before. My favorite um, uh, advice from a lobbyist came from John Norwood. A couple of years ago, we were remodeling. We have a pool, and we re- it looked like the, the Okefenokee Swamp. And we were remodeling, and I put a new liner in it and stuff. But I was really sort of freaked out about how I was going to fill it with water. Here we are in the middle of a drought. And so I asked John, who was representing the Pool and Spa Owners Association of California, and I said, what do I do? And he says, well, fill it at night. I thought, yes, yes. It's that kind of brilliance that cuts through. (laughs) Now, how long does it take to fill a pool? Uh, Well, with one garden hose that I had, which had pretty good pressure, it took, I think, about 12 hours. Wow. Yeah, something like that. All at night, too. I'll bet. <laughs> and actually, I saw him the other day, and I asked him, uh, so what's the new, are there any new drought rules as they relate to pools? And he said, yeah, you got to put a cover on them to keep the evaporation as that well. Make, that makes sense. sense. you know. So I think that will improve the algae underneath, and that's another problem, but we'll see. You know? So, and then another new person 
is David Pruitt, someone whose name has come up a lot. I've heard his name in discussions about this list before. He's never been on the list before, but he certainly is somebody that yeah. But it wouldn't have surprised me to see him on the list earlier yeah, I, because I his name has been mentioned many um, times. Yeah, and we, uh, for me personally, I just heard about him this year, but he's been around. People know about him. He's a Democratic fundraiser. And God, and he has everybody as his client. Lots of, yeah. So I mean, from Rindon on down. Yeah. So, you know, one year we had a lot of fundraisers, and it made the list look really good because we had all – and most of them were women. The best fundraisers were women. And – so the, the list had gender balance, which we had been trying, we'd been striving for. But the, it, the reality was after the, you know, after it came out, you know, people said, well, you know, it's great to have the fundraisers there. But after the fundraising is done, the elected is not going to that person for policy advice or for, for political, you know, not going to that person. Typically, they've got advisors and other people to do that and themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, so there aren't that many fundraisers on yeah. this. Although Pruitt, I think uh, he has a fundraising and strategy. Yes, he does. I think yeah. it's slightly the yeah. difference why he's... I think he's sort of, in a way, I think he's... One person described him as the new Dan Weitzman. Mm. We should do this before. We did fundraising for the leadership, so, for what it's worth. Yeah. And what was uh, the woman who was there, Tony? Oh, yeah. Uh, Tony, oh, God. Sorry, Tony, we've forgotten your last name, but I'm here's, your, here's your moment in the top 100. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Pre... So, uh, and then to get to number 100, uh, we usually have a wealth of reporters on this list. I would say like, you know, multiple reporters. This time we had yeah, no so, reporters. Yeah. We had one columnist, George yeah. Skelton, who, how do you do a top 100 yeah. list without George Skelton? Uh, but this time we only have yeah. two reporters. Well, we, uh, we haven't had that many reporters per se on the list. We have had columnists, of course. Um, this was, I, I thought this was kind of a tough call. You know, sometimes you know right away what a big story of the year has been, and, and it had an impact, and we all remember it. You know, that the year that uh, Laura Rosenhall did the story on the mask and the state getting built and having the clots money back and yeah. 400, 500 million bucks. And, but I thought this story that um, uh, Tal Copan and Joe Garofoli, uh, that they did on Feinstein. Uh, you know, her her mental state <clears throat> and the rumors in Washington swirling around about, uh, you know, she's kind of losing it. God, and as we um, speak, literally there was a story that broke yesterday. So somebody caught like a live mic of, of Elizabeth Warren leaning over to Feinstein and saying, you know, poppies need a nap. I think you need to go take a nap. Oh, thank you, thank you, Senator Warren. I'm, <laughs> thank you. I'm greatly relieved at uh, Senator Feinstein's mental acuity. Um, but you know, it's a tough story to write. It's one of those subjects a lot of people don't like to talk about, and when they do talk about it, uh, they don't want to talk about it publicly. Yeah, not on the record. Uh, not on the record. Um, and but that story had quotes from opponents, it had quotes from supporters, it had quotes from uh, in the in the houses. I'm talking about the electeds. It also had quotes from people who were uh, staff people and consulting people, and that was good. I thought it was hard to put together. They handled it very well. I thought it was a good story. Yeah, and there were well, and there were a number of stories. It was a New Yorker story. Yes. I think Politico did a story. Uh, yes, they were all good. Yeah, but the difference here is that this one really named names and it had people yeah. on the record. And I, I would agree with you in that I feel like this one seemed like it kind of got more resonance. In California, that was my take. The Jane Mayer piece in the New Yorker ran in uh, 2020, so it ran two years ago, basically. Yeah. Then there was a follow-up opinion piece in the Washington Post. 
um, that rant, but it was an opinion piece. It raised some of the same issues, but not not nearly the kind of depth. I think what made this story work it was a it, it was a good news story at a time when it needed to be told. I you know sometimes stories reinvent themselves. You do one one year, five years later you have you do another because the issue is the same or the issue is coming up again. I think that was the value of this one. You know, uh, also this is her state the chronicle. Uh, although Tall has lately gone to the Washington uh, to the uh, Boston Globe since the story was written, but um, this is a California story about a California politician who, if she runs again, uh, faces election in California. So it's of primary interest to us. Yeah, well, it's interesting because this story, uh, obviously, Talkovin is based in D.C. She has connections there. But for me, the much more familiar name, Joe Garofoli, is a much more familiar name for California politics. He's writing about that all the time. Yeah. Uh, Talk Hope and I can't even remember the last time yeah. I saw her violate a story that was about California politics, not, yeah. not a California politician in D.C. Uh-huh. So so I'd be curious to know, I mean, obviously there's a shared byline. We we shared them on the on their listing. But... Uh, Oh, yeah, the story was a joint byline. And Garfoli also does columns now. He's a yeah. senior political writer. This was uh, uh, a, a, sort of an in-depth, investigative, to a certain extent, report. It was very comprehensive. And this took a lot of hard work. Tal Kalpin isn't a, isn't a columnist. And she's a deputy bureau chief, I think, for The Globe in D.C. now. Um, she's not a columnist. This is reporting right yeah. here. You know, so. so anyway, well... All right. There you have it. That was this year. So we should say that we uh, we finished this all up and went off to the printer quite a long time ago, which is why which is why Tal Capone is still identified as a San Francisco Chronicle uh, employee when she actually yeah. was is now at the Boston yeah, But you got to cut us some slack. Yeah. You know? um, and then we had a party on last Tuesday, so basically a week before this airs, and we had a party over at the Sutter Club, kind of did the countdown. It's a little awkward for the people in the room that don't know if they're uh, on the list. Sorry about that. That I have to admit, that's the only part of the party that I don't like, is yeah, that there's people there that they think maybe they're on the list, or think maybe they're not, and it, I just, I feel crappy for them, and on the one hand, I feel like I should tell them, because I know, because I've proofed the book, uh, but on the other end, I really feel like I shouldn't tell anybody. So it's it's a knock. That's the one shitty part about this party is feeling bad for the people that think they're on and they're not. Uh, on the other hand, it's pretty fun to watch people that uh, didn't know they're on the list and they see the R. Yeah, that's actually most, their fun, friends. most yeah. fun on the list is having people who've never been on the list and they, they, they're surprised when they yeah. see it. My favorite response to that was another Chronicle guy, Jackson Van Derbiken. And he was astonished that he was on the, on the list. And his I think it was his wife tweeted or sent us a message. says, I can't even get them to take the trash out. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, know? well, and you know, it's funny. I was at our party. Uh, we had two people who were on the list were there. Uh, Andrew Antwi, who is a, uh, he's a lobbyist. Yeah. And his wife, Carrie Holloman, who is actually on our board of directors for Open California. Uh, she's also on the list. Quite a few numbers above him. And uh, he said, look, I got to talk to you, man. Like, you know, she's lording this over, she's lording this over me. <laughs> and she's like, you're damn right I am. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then on the flip side, you have uh, you have Paul Mitchell, who is, I think, 40 numbers above yeah. his wife, Jody Hicks. And he just says, hey, it wouldn't, it it, it, it wouldn't be accurate if it was any other way. You That's know, right. So. I think we think it's accurate. And, and what better satisfaction can you have but uh, – Prompting marital discord on, in, the, in the list, you know, you know and, it makes and her I, life worth living. I know? have to say, you know, uh, 
my wife makes more than me on her salary. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, there are people who complain about that. I'm like, bring it on. I could just like lollygag around and lackadaisically do my, my, uh, you know, my executive directing of up in California and she brings in the, the big money, you know, doing her job. So I'm like, this is great. Yeah. I, I believe it was Anthony York who once advised you should marry a lobbyist. And he did. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, the party was great. Dan Zagali, uh, former longtime habitue, uh, at the, you know, North end of the list, uh, was one of our uh, celebrity countdown and also Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, much to our surprise, uh, showed up, and also did the countdown with him. That was pretty fun yeah. to have uh, people who are much more uh, comfortable in front of a crowd of people than John and I are. Yeah. Uh, so that was pretty fun. And if you came out to that, thanks a lot. And I hope you had a good time and grabbed some snacks and a Top 100 book. If you want a print edition of the Top 100 book, we do have a few of them left. Uh, they're 10 bucks uh, plus some shipping. So just reach out to us. Uh, send your cards and letters or emails or phone calls. Uh, and uh, we do have a few available, although... They're going pretty quickly this year. So, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, we can turn to John's favorite part of the episode uh, where we talk about who is that's the old, John likes this better than he likes the top uh, 100. Who yes, had, that's true. That's absolutely true. Who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. I forgot. <laughs> well, okay. Um, uh, well, Again, this is one of those things where you, there is a subjective quality to this, but we figured uh, Brooke Jenkins, the district attorney in San Francisco, clearly, if she wasn't the one who had the worst week, she's right up there near the top, okay? She's, as we said, she's a DA of San Francisco. She was appointed there uh, by the mayor of San Francisco after the recall of um, uh, Jesse Bodine. And what makes this interesting is that the recall, the pro-recall forces put quite a bit of dough into this race, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I saw one number said 720000 from one source that was spread up through various committees. Um, Brooke Jenkins resigned last year, last October, from the DA's office saying, you know, she had differences with the DA and she wanted with uh, Bodine and she wanted to, she favored the recall and she wanted to go out and work for it. And so um, the suggestion, the implication there was she did this with no ulterior motive. She did this because philosophically she, you know, uh, opposed uh, Bodine. It got a lot of attention, then, especially in San Francisco, which to get political attention in San Francisco, it's a, it's a screwy city in so many ways. And yet this still got a lot of attention there. They were, following the recall, uh, obviously very closely. Well, it turns out that she was paid, Brooke Jenkins was paid $100,000 as a consulting, as a consultant for the pro-recall forces, and that the money came through sort of an intricate arrangement of at least four campaign committees. Um, she was paid with by one of them. And nobody knew that. Everybody thought, well, she resigned out of a sense of conscience, and she that's when you know she got involved in the pro-recall fight. And I'm sure her argument is, I mean, I've not heard this, but I'm sure she says, hey, I was going to resign anyway, then they hired me. Or, you know, I would have, this was just an alignment of two things that were in alignment already. It could be. Uh, you know, and that's very, I've certainly we've you know, seen that, that, that could be. And, you know, to, to be uh, fair here, 
Uh, no one, I saw a story two days ago in the Chronicle, nobody that the Chronicle talked to suggested that this was illegal. Yeah. Um, and the $100,000 payment was disclosed on her disclosure form with the city elections, uh, San Francisco has an ethics commission, city elections commission, committee, and it was disclosed there. Uh, her support her supporters, which she received before this payment was disclosed, include uh, State Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco and several of the board members of the Board of Supervisors. None of them changed their mind after this payment was disclosed. There's nothing you know, illegal with that. And then finally, when it comes to San Francisco politics, um, uh, the judge down at San Mateo he said, hey, she didn't do anything. This guy's been through campaigns all the time, and he would know somebody's skating on thin ice. It's, that happens all the time, and I don't worry about it. She didn't do anything. But you know what? And frankly, it probably is. I mean, it's funny that there's so many things people get outraged about when they yeah. find out. And you go, yeah, this is literally happens every day in every county across the United States. Yeah. And it's just something you, if you don't know anything about it, it sounds nefarious. And you're like, no, it's yeah. just kind of the way it goes. You know, and I, sometimes I, nefarious things are nefarious and they happen all the time anyway. Sometimes they just seem nefarious and really it's just like, it's just the way things happen. Yeah. There's really nothing wrong with it. It's just, it looks awkward. Yeah. I, I Nature of the that. beast. You know? And it really, it, having said that though, those committees are under investigation and there is a FPPC, Fair Political Practices Commission, investigation into this. The pro-Bodine people, people liked him, filed complaint last August. So a year ago, they filed wow. this complaint before before the election. I mean, the election was in June. They filed this long before then. Uh, the FPPC started investigating. We find out now that there is an investigation underway into those campaign committees. But... You have to wonder if you are a pro uh, Bodine person. You got to wonder. You file a complaint and it's not resolved and not even known until a year later, or it gets attention until a year later. I mean, what's the point? If he is, a, you know, which he was, he was recalled. Nothing you can do about it if you're a supporter, because the deed is done. Um, FPP is an interesting body. This is the Jerry Brown created entity. He really pushed for this when he ran for governor the first time. And the FPPC has three things, interesting things going for it. Yes, it can only file in itself, can only file civil, uh, civil complaints. But it has a capacity to turn over to local DAs criminal complaints. Uh-huh. It can turn over its evidence to local DAs. And that's a big – it doesn't do that all the time. I was going to say, can you think of a time when this actually like, sent somebody to jail? Yeah, uh, to jail. Uh you know, I can't. I can't remember now. I think there were some in local, um, excuse me, like cities where the FPPC got involved and counties got involved. They turned it over to the local prosecutors and that wanted them criminal. Somehow I think that happened in southeast L.A. or south L.A. I shouldn't say I'm not sure about that. Um, but they can prompt a criminal investigation. So that's something that worries people, obviously. Uh, you know, another thing is that they... Uh, the fact that they're investigating is a hit on you. So whether they find out anything at all, the fact that they're investigating is a negative vibe on a, you know, I mean, that's negative to a campaign. Nobody wants to see in the paper, Joe Blow's campaign isn't being investigated by the FPPC because it conjures up images of nefarious, you know, illegality. And stuff. Nobody wants Although, to see you that. know, I really wonder in this media age, how much difference that makes, unless you're running a, like a really like a, 
squeaky clean image. I mean, at this point, things are so polarized. I would think yeah. that you you would say, oh, this is a political hit. They, you know, just like Trump just said about the Mar-a-Lago FBI experience. Oh, they they were just sent there by Biden, and they're going to look for things. They're going to plant evidence, and I really wonder if in this hyper-polarized age, if you, if they don't, you know, the results are not in yet and it's just an investigation. Oh, they're just doing this to take me out because they know I'm after their buddies in, you know, insert. It could be, you know, you see that definitely on the national level in in California, the rap on the uh, FPPC is that it hasn't been aggressive enough and that, you know, the toothless watchdog cliche, you know, should go out there and do more of they have a limited staff like everybody else but um uh they a big thing they can do the third thing i was going to mention that they can do is they have settlements so they go after somebody they investigate the person or the entity they're investigating they'll reach a settlement with that person which means that campaign has acknowledged some problem the campaign in its own writing so unlike an investigation, you know, say at the, at the federal level, where, where it sounds obviously politically partisan, this doesn't quite do that because at the end of the day, it's made public. Both people, both parties have agreed to, and there have been hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlements, usually far less than that. But there have been big settlements that the FPC, FPPC has participated in that I think is pretty cool. You know, it started because of Watergate. Yeah. It was post-Watergate that came up with, and they've had their problems for sure. But uh, the fact that they're investigating this, this issue in San Francisco with those campaign committees is going to be interesting to follow. Yeah. Well, we may be revisiting it with a worst week, you know, down the road. That was this has been the longest podcast. I'm getting hoarse. This has been the longest podcast we've ever done. And it was the Scott the Top 100 book. That and it was it, the know. most informative, John. <laughs> yeah, I know. Probably are, so, yeah. <laughs> people really understand now. They deeply understand yes. our woes with sending this thing to print yeah. way before it actually comes out. And then we find out yeah. that things change. The rigor, the methodology, the care. You know, I'm glad we finally got that message across. So very good. Uh, Tim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. And uh, this is John Howard. And we will talk to you soon. Take care. Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.